Oddball is made possible by supporters of WJCT Public Media, with additional support from Bold Bean Coffee Roasters. While this podcast might be a mystery, Bold Bean's coffee isn't. Ethically sourced bags of beans are roasted to highlight their origin, characteristics, and natural sweetness. So when you order that latte, you're supporting transparency and quality at every step of the coffee chain. Bold Bean, sourcing, roasting, brewing, and serving outstanding coffee. From WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville, this is Episode 5, the season finale of Oddball. I'm Lindsay Kilbride. We don't know what else is inside of it. Yeah, it could be anything. If it had really been what Harder says it was, it certainly would have made an impression. Did it move of its own accord? I think we've uh, conquered that largely as uh, uh, a little bit of wishful thinking. And that makes it sound like he was covering, you know, like there was something about it that he didn't want to talk about. Yeah, so are you, are you insinuating, Lindsay, that my father was like <laughs> some kind of UFO kleptomaniac? So you did bring up the fact that I want to talk to her. I did. She was like, you know, Nan, I just, um, I, fe- I just don't feel comfortable really sharing this with anyone. One of the main reasons the Betts sphere caught so much attention in the 70s is because a lot of people, including Jerry Betts herself, speculated the ball might have been from outer space. So as I near the end of my own inquiry into this mystery, I'd really like to know for sure, is that even possible? A lot of people have said the ball is definitely made on Earth because it's stainless steel. Remember, like Brian Dunning from the Skeptoid podcast. It's a common industrial steel, and it's probably not likely to be something that aliens would use, so we can be pretty sure metallurgically that it's something from from some industrial plant right here on Earth. But can we? The week the ball started making headlines, Jerry Betts asked two different news reporters, who could say what's on another planet? And I have no idea. That's why I brought back FSU geochemistry professor Munir Humayun. My expertise is in the study of extraterrestrial materials, particularly in metals from extraterrestrial materials in their analysis. So what do we know about what materials exist outside of Earth? Well, if you're talking just natural materials and you're not asking what have extraterrestrial civilizations come up with, then um, stainless steel is a very um, anthropogenic product. You do not find stainless steel falling from natural materials. Um, The materials we find in space, including iron meteorites, have very distinct compositions and we can recognize them rather easily from man-made products. Stainless steel 431 is a very specific chemical composition and a very specific textural association. It would be remarkable if another civilization made a stainless steel that's exactly like 431. Say that that did happen. You know, what would have happened to the sphere if it would have dropped into Earth? Let's presume that, for argument's sake, a spacecraft did not visit Earth and drop the sphere inadvertently, like a little space alien playing with their ball and left it behind on Earth. If it were roaming around in space, regardless of how it got there, it would be exposed to galactic cosmic rays, and so it would have a certain amount of radioactivity in it, which would have been detectable when they had measured it, if they had measured radioactivity very sensitively. Jerry told reporters the Navy found the ball was not radioactive and not explosive. 
But what about that scientist's alleged comments that the little balls inside the sphere are made out of elements heavier than anything known to science? Humayun's assessment? Unlikely to be an element heavier than any known to humans because um, a heavier metal would both increase the density beyond what we measure and it would also um, be radioactive, incredibly radioactive. And so if there was a significant, like a little sphere of some element like californium or, or any other transuranic, you would pick that up. But you'd pick it up in the x-ray because it would come out really bright and shiny compared to the steel. And you would pick it up in the gamma rays, which probably was what they measured when they were looking for radioactivity. So if the Navy did test for radioactivity and didn't find anything, like the article said, that pretty much rules out Professor James Harder's alleged comments that the ball contained elements heavier than anything found on Earth. But it doesn't rule out that the little balls inside were made out of a different material than the outer shell. Why does that matter? Well, the Navy's explanation is the balls inside, they're just little fragments of the shell that fell in during manufacturing. But maybe they were intentionally placed there for a purpose. Or maybe something else just got in there. I don't know. Of course, debris doesn't make a ball vibrate and roll around weird. Jerry also said it was almost like she could hear the little balls inside pinging around by themselves, like something more was going on in there. But none of the scientists I spoke with had any theories. Professor Humayun says nowadays there are beams that would be able to collect the atomic composition of the inside of the sphere. The theory he finds most compelling was that somebody mentioned that this looked exactly like a pulp mill ball. No, not him too. Another one joins the paper plant theory club. It's been kind of difficult to get scientists to participate in interviews about this because a lot of it is speculative. I don't have the official Navy report despite my many, many public records requests. If anyone out there listening does have it, I would love to see it. One materials engineer who agreed to answer my questions by email says cutting the ball open would have pretty much answered all of these questions. The Navy had asked to cut it open, and Professor J. Allen Hynek talked about cutting it open during that radio interview after he returned from the New Orleans National Enquirer panel. Of course, if we could cut the thing open, then that would solve the whole thing, probably. But ruin it for someone else, I would think. Ruin it for someone else, and it's such a nice ball. (laughs) But all signs point to the ball really wasn't anything special, or we can't prove it was. I think UFO expert Jerry Clark said it best when he called the ball a blip in history, nothing more. If, if it had really been what Harder says it, would, it was, it certainly would have made an impression. And it would be something like proof of some kind of, you know, otherworldly visitations. It clearly wasn't that, whatever it was. I asked Clark, what about all the weird allegations? The Navy's trying to take the sphere back. Why would they want it if it wasn't special? Terry's being flown back to Florida and separated from the ball because his mom was supposedly sick only to find out that was made up. What about it rolling uphill? What about all the witnesses who said the ball acted weird? Well, that's interesting, but, you know, what are you going to do with that? You know, you hear these stories, and there are stories where people claim that someone took their evidence. And um, if these stories are true in any way, they certainly have had no measurable influence on any observable government UFO policy. 
He believes if the government really had, you know, a collection of UFOs, they'd be reverse engineered and we'd have a lot of new technologies we don't have. These things are all taking place on the margins of society. Mm. And to the people who experience them, they're, they may be life-changing. I mean, they're extremely strange and upsetting and, and challenging, but they don't affect history. Life goes on. talking to Jerry Clark and all these scientists, I'd adopted this attitude too. And this is my mindset as I go into my next chat with Nan, the magazine editor who profiled Jerry Betts a couple years ago. She'd been talking with Jerry and she said she'd ask her again on my behalf if there's any way she'd consider talking for this podcast. In Jerry's most recent email to Nan, she was really short. It was just a couple sentences. And then she ended it with, I wish you and your family the best. Nan says she feels like Jerry's kind of blowing her off. It does sound like that. So when I talked to Nan, she was racking her brain thinking, did I say something wrong, do something to upset her? And she even followed up with an apology to Jerry. I took that for what it seemed to be, which is, you know, I'm just not really interested in engaging. I don't I don't blame her. I, I want to respect her privacy mm-hmm. in a way. Like, I feel like that her last email was definitely um, her trying to establish a boundary from our previous exchanges. And so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of let it settle a little while and then mull it over. I do, I want to respect her privacy, but I also would, you know, would love to, to speak with her again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a bummer for sure. I know. I feel like I blew it. No. (laughs) I feel like totally blew it. I called Nan on her cell instead of having her swing by the studio for better quality sound because I thought this would be the extent of our conversation, just a little check-in. But we end up talking for 45 minutes. I fill her in about a lot of my research and conversations, like with Leo Sprinkle, the scientist on the UFO panel who doesn't remember the sphere at all. That sounds kind of like pleading the fifth or something. And the conversation I had with UFO expert Clark, where he basically says no one in the UFO community cared about this ball, it was nothing special. Nan says, yeah, but the government does all kinds of secret stuff. And think about who Jerry is. There was no need for her to kind of create this fiction around this object, Mm -hmm. you know, um, to sensationalize something. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally think that the Betts family, something happened um, during that time period that scared the Betts family into silence. And just like that, I'm back again. Not sure what to believe, remembering Nan's conversations with Jerry and all these weird things that happened with the ball. Some I haven't even shared with you yet, until now. Nan was the second person who has a direct relationship with Jerry to tell me Alan Hynek from the UFO panel came to Jerry's house to examine the ball. Yeah, so Hynek reached out. He wanted them to come to Chicago. She said, no, you, you know, if you want to see this beer, you're going to have to come to us. So he came and she said that he was... Just a delightful person. They enjoyed their time together. Um, he was only there for a couple of days. Uh, he asked if he could, um, if this, if he could, you know, bring the sphere into his bedroom overnight. Um, and she didn't really see any harm in that. Um, she trusted him. He was a government and scientist, you know, uh, with a, you know, very, you know, staunch reputation. And I think Jerry just wanted to know what it was. Like, that was her whole Mm -hmm. mission behind all of this, was just to find out what this thing was. So he spent the night with it. 
and then he left the next day. She said that he came carrying a what she described as like a old fashioned doctor's bag. Um, so like one of those leather, large leather sacks. Hmm. Um, I think she just assumed it was full of tools or clothes or whatever. Um, then he left. Sometime after this, Nan says Jerry told her she took the ball to be x-rayed again because the ball had stopped rolling around and vibrating at this point. I think she felt like there was something different about it and she wanted to be sure. Um, and she... She was really surprised when the x-rays came back and they were different from the original ones that she had um, had done prior to Dr. Hynek coming. And did you say did she say what was different about them? She did. She said that they were they were seams. They were actual seams on the sphere where in the original x-rays there were no seams of the on like the on the inside. She didn't specifically say. it looked different. Yeah. I found an article in which Jerry actually addresses this. The date is cut off, but it's definitely later on. She explains a lot of people are after the ball. She had to have a guy ordered off her property. Some firm offered her 750 grand for the ball. Then she says she had the ball x-rayed again, and these did not match the Navy's x-rays. The bet sphere had three little balls inside. Two look perfectly round, and the third is bigger and not so round. There's a little line coming from it, which she calls an antenna. She says that ball was now pulverized. I can't even prove now it's the same one we originally had, she said. She was just furious. And then she, I think that that anger changed to kind of the revelation that whatever the sphere was, the government did not want her to find out did not want her to know and she decided in that moment to burn those x-rays she did not feel comfortable with any sort of proof of that information nan says the family knows where the ball is it's still around they still have the ball that she feels like is not the ball but she doesn't know who has it Someone close to Jerry, who asked to remain anonymous, tells me today she isn't sure if it was swapped out or tampered with, but the ball was never the same after all these investigators had their hands on it. We don't have proof Heineck took the ball or tampered with it, and I want to make that clear. But let's talk about how likely that could have been, because if it was true, it would make more sense as to why people may have been after it, if it was something the Betzes maybe shouldn't have had. There's also this weird new detail. One of Heineck's sons, recently, as in this year, was quoted in his hometown newspaper saying, growing up, his family had a metal ball from a Florida UFO case. Quick refresh. Heineck was contracted by the Air Force to figure out explanations for UFO sightings. After his work with the government, he founded the Center for UFO Studies, or CUFOS, near where he lived in Evanston, Illinois. It's still around today, and it's where I got that old radio interview tape. So Jerry Clark, the UFO expert, was on the center's board. Very small world, this UFO community. What was Heineck like? Oh, he was... (laughs) He was a wonderful man. He always had a twinkle in his eye and a pipe in his mouth. And he was just fun. He was extremely smart, and he was just sort of overwhelmed every living moment with, you know, scientific curiosity. 
you said you knew him fairly well. I'm just trying to gauge how much time you spent with him. Oh, man, I don't know. You know, I maybe see him once every week or two. Okay. And um, sometimes, you know, we were at his, by we, I mean I and fellow CUFO's officers or sometimes just myself at his house in Evanston. And I knew his wife. We were involved in the same organization, the same goals. I want to hear what Clark thinks about these rumors, that the sphere was different after Heineck left the Betzes or sometime around the National Enquirer UFO conference. I've heard and read both. And that Heineck supposedly had a similar ball in his home. The sphere apparently wasn't the same afterward, so they didn't know if he tampered with it or switched it out. Or So do you know if he ever would you know, swipe artifacts that he was interested in or re- try to recreate them or anything like that? Well, uh, let me let me answer it this way. One thing that Alan really wanted was validation. That he really hoped that before he died, that he would have the proof that UFOs exist. And this was really important to him because he had taken a real hit from his colleagues. He had been a prominent and respected astronomer until he went to the dark side. And so it was very important for Alan to find validation. So he wasn't above quietly grabbing a document of the official files, which he thought was going to be burned or otherwise discarded. You know, I I don't mean highly classified documents. Alan had a high security classification, and he took it very seriously. But there was a lot of stuff that would have been interesting to somebody researching UFOs that to the people around Alan when he was working in his official capacity were just junk. And if there was a sphere in the house, which I never saw, and I was in that house on a number of occasions and was never mentioned to me, and I never saw anything like that. But it would have been in in the context of just picking up something that otherwise would have been discarded. He didn't even necessarily have to think that it was important in the context of documenting the existence of UFOs. Do you think that if he did think that there was something to the sphere that you would have known that? Yes. Yes, I think it would have been known to us at CUFOs, and it would have been an important item. He said the center published a scientific journal, and he believes if Heineck had the sphere, it would have been handed over to their scientists, and that never happened. I reached out to the center myself and heard back from its current director. He said, The Bet Sphere was ultimately found to not be anything alien or paranormal. And he attached the NICAP report we dived into last episode, which concludes, The thing is probably from the paper mill. I also reached out to a woman named Ginny Zeidman, one of Heineck's old colleagues and close friends. She emailed me that she's not familiar with the ball I described either. So what was Heineck's son talking about? Growing up with a metal sphere from a Florida UFO case? Well, here's what I know about that. After the break. 
Oddball is made possible by supporters of WJCT Public Media, with additional support from Bold Bean Coffee Roasters, based in Jacksonville, Florida. It started as a father and son roasting coffee in their garage about a decade ago, and now it's a company that works directly with farmers and more than 140 wholesale partners. And it has several cafes where you can get a latte and delicious food to go with it. That's where Adam Burnett, the bakery manager, comes in. It's just food that people want to eat. It's that, like, comfortable, really good, from-scratched, baked goods. Like his favorite, croissants, which take three and a half days to make. That's why you roll all the croissants, where I was talking about rolling the butter in. We do that first thing in the morning. I bring the croissants out here to proof because this warm weather really fluffs them up real good. And what day are these on? Um, These are day three, so these will get baked here in several hours once they're done proofing. Taste one for yourself at one of Bold Bean's Jacksonville coffee shops. And for a limited time, you can also pick up a bag of special oddball coffee blended just for this podcast. Or order the coffee online along with a Bold Bean tote bag and mug. Shop all the merch at oddballpodcast.com, where you can also make a donation to WJCT so we can keep making podcasts like this one. If you like stories about regular people going through extraordinary circumstances, and I assume you do if you're listening to Oddball, you might want to check out another WJCT podcast that I'm really proud of called What It's Like. Each episode is basically a conversation between two people who went through something intense together. What It's Like is available wherever you get your podcasts. Paul Heineck is an advisor on the TV show Project Blue Book, which is about his dad. Name's Dr. Alan Heineck. You want me to investigate flying saucers? I want you to help me prove to the public the truth. They don't exist. He was recently interviewed for an article about his role with the TV show and what it was like growing up with a dad really into UFOs. And this is the very last quote in the story. I found out recently that a big silver sphere we had was from some famous UFO case in Florida. We would just kick it around on the floor because we didn't know what it was. What? So I get him on the phone and rather than lead with the alleged ball theft, I ask him, you know, what was your dad like? People talk about him, you know, changing from being a skeptic to a believer. I don't think believer is really a good word for a scientist. I think he became an acceptor. Um, that he accepted that there was a phenomenon. Um, he felt very strongly that you should keep your eyes open or your mind open when confronted with what may be a new phenomena, but then also to not close your mind too quickly, just availing yourself of the best answer that you have handy, because the answer may be more difficult and you need to be comfortable with questions that you can't answer, um, which is a large part of science. So you know, he became convinced um, within a few years that there was something going on because he and the Air Force couldn't explain all these cases. And if you look at Project Blue Book's official stats or some 12,000 cases that they investigated and over 700 they couldn't explain. And this was with a clear mandate, as, as we see in the show, to explain them all away, and yet they still couldn't. Through his work with the Air Force, it seemed your dad maybe disagreed with some of their public conclusions about the cases. My father felt that the Air Force's job isn't science, it's national security. 
But while he was there, yes, it was there was friction and frustration. He said Project Blue Book turned into more of a public relations exercise to tamp down hysteria. But he felt that his ability to help collect the information and guide how it's collected and recorded was very valuable for his later analysis and uh, discussion. Okay, okay. I won't keep you waiting anymore. What about this Florida ball in his house? Well, here's what I know about that. Um, I spoke uh, on a panel at AlienCon in Pasadena last year in the summer. And a woman came up to me after the panel and showed me a newspaper clipping with a picture of a sphere and said, do you know anything about this case? And I said, you know, I, I haven't heard about this case, but we had a big metallic sphere in our basement for years. And my brother and I had no idea where it came from. And we would just sort of kick it around the floor. I mean, it was like, it was larger than a basketball. And it was this big metallic sphere. And we had no idea where it came from. And so I mentioned this to the woman. And then 10 minutes later, after Googling on her phone, she came back and she said, I think your father took possession of that sphere. Um, so I can't confirm or deny if the sphere we saw was from that case. But I do know that that, that woman was very excited and that we had a sphere in our house. And your dad didn't say where it was from ever? No. Okay. Uh, because we all, we had so many things yeah. in our house um, that uh, it was just sort of became normal for us. You know, we had a, a this artistic rendering of Travis Walton being zapped by UFO um, on the wall in our laundry room. As you it's do. Just sort of commonplace things for us. Yeah, as one does. And Christmas ornaments that were UFOs on the tree. You know, things like that. Wow. Um, yeah. So I read that you said that in a, in a recent article and there are comments that were like, maybe it's the Beth Sphere. And um, and then I also know that in the show, there's a plot point where your dad takes one of the artifacts. And I was like, is that based on a yeah. real occurrence? Yeah. So are you, are you insinuating, Lindsay, that my father was like <laughs> some kind of UFO kleptomaniac? <laughs> I Not necessarily, but yes, that is. So there's a cult <laughs> following around the sphere, right? And then once that quote came out in the article, people were like, you know, maybe the sphere was switched out or maybe he has it or maybe he made a duplicate of it. And so everyone's sort of inquiring, you know, what's going on with oh, this. Oh, wow. Well, you know, I, I can imagine a, a situation where if that, that, that was the case, let's just entertain the sort of Enter the, the the kind of fun aspect of that. If this was that sphere, then I think my father probably did a good job not telling his Gabby teenage sons where it came from. I didn't have Paul on the phone for very long, so I followed up with some emails. I asked him, where's this basement ball today? He has no idea. I asked about the ball's weight. You know, the bet sphere was more than 20 pounds. Paul said his dad's sphere, really heavy. But he estimates the ball was a little bigger than a basketball. I checked, and the bet sphere would have actually been a little bit smaller. Not by much, but still. And he doesn't remember there being a triangular chip out of the side like the bet sphere had. Then Paul reaches out to his brother, who reminds him their ball seemed hollow and made some kind of jingly noises when they rolled it. Sounds pretty familiar. And they remember there was some kind of mark on the outside. He described it as a manufacturing scar. A seal where the molten metal was poured into a mold, perhaps, he wrote. But he followed up saying, If you heard my dad saying it wasn't out of this world in an interview, I'd go with that. I'm not ready to just go with that. So I reached out to one of Hynek's other sons and asked what he remembers. 
He says, if he remembers correctly, it was an industrial ball bearing, and his dad didn't bring it home. A different brother did. He confirmed it was hollow, and when you rolled it, something else moved around inside. Then he tells me, I vaguely remember the ball ending up with one of my friends somehow. Then I asked if he'd mind following up with his brother, the one who maybe brought a giant ball bearing home. Because if Heineck definitely didn't bring this ball home, that's a pretty big breakthrough. More than a month later, I get a reply. Finally got a hold of Joel, that's the other brother. It turns out he is not the one that brought the sphere back home. He seems to remember that it was our dad who brought it home. Still a bit of a mystery. I also seem to remember that at one time, there were actually two spheres, although Joel doesn't seem to remember the second. We both agree it was a long time ago. I ask if he knows where that ball is today, and he says no. He thinks an old friend may have taken it, but the person he'd want to ask has passed away. After all these interviews, I still haven't talked to Jerry, and I've honestly been panicking because I don't know if I can tell this story without her, or if I even want to. I really only wanted to do this project under that assumption. That's the only way to do it right, right? My coworker who works in a totally different department knew I was having trouble getting in touch with somebody, so a couple days later, he dropped off some stationery on my desk and said, try writing her a letter. So I did, and I quickly realized I can't remember the last time I've handwritten someone a letter. I have to Google what a cursive capital G looks like. Capital G. Cursive. Ultimately, decided against cursive, if you're wondering. But this is what I write. Jerry. I'm reaching out because over the past year, I've been working on a podcast about the sphere your family found in 1974. I'm a reporter. I start with, I know your family has chosen not to discuss this. It's been difficult to figure out what to write to you because I don't know the best way to show you my intentions are not to sensationalize nor to exploit. Through my research, I've interviewed two of Dr. Heineck's sons about the sphere they had in their house growing up. I try to show her this is really well researched. anything up. But I don't only care about the ball. For me, this is a small piece of the story. From the very beginning, I've admired you and thought you were incredible. I want listeners to understand that too. You know, there's an entire Jerry Betts folder of articles in the Florida Times Union Library. The focus of the folder isn't this ball. It's your work in the community, pre-sphere discovery, stories about you standing up. You know all this already. If you even agree to talk but don't want to talk about the ball, that's okay. I won't cross any lines. I just think it's extremely important for me to actually speak to you. If anything, would you be open to fact-checking? I left her my cell number and email. I really hope to hear from you. Lindsay. I send it to an address she's associated with, hoping she'll receive it. In trying to make sense of all these rabbit holes, I reached out to a couple guys who also recently did a deep dive into the Betts mystery sphere. Scott Philbrook. Okay, Lindsay, I'm starting a record session here. And Forrest Burgess. I have our show script notes uh, punched up in case uh, 
you know, there's a question and I have to search. They host the podcast Astonishing Legends. I thought it would be helpful to sort of compare notes and talk through some of what I'm stuck on. On their podcast, they basically look into stuff they're interested in. The paranormal, weird science, odd historical stories. I guess we consider everything, every possibility going in, but try not to settle on one before going in and discounting the others, which you see a lot of times, uh, especially with people who study this kind of thing. It's like, well, it can't be this. You know, it can't be this phenomenon. Yeah, we don't rule it out. But un- con- conversely, with people who are open to wilder explanations, we also don't rule out mundane explanations. And sometimes we do an investigation, and at the end of it, it seems like maybe it was much more mundane than the legends and the lore around it would have you believe. Other times, we do an investigation, and at the end of it, it seems like it's the craziest thing you've ever heard in your life. They had this interview with an anonymous woman who they say is a member of the Betts family, although not Jerry. And the source even says she was there when her family member found the ball. Having that firsthand account, that's something a lot of times we don't get a chance at getting, because we're often talking about things that are hundreds of years old and everybody's dead. So it's nice to it's yeah. nice to be able to actually talk to somebody who was there. She backs up a lot of what we've heard before, plus that the Betts family knows where the ball is, but no one in the family has it at their house because they've entrusted a third party with it for safekeeping. She tells the story of Terry, the guy who found the ball, being flown home and separated from the ball. She says the ball actually rolled uphill in front of a crowd and all the footage was confiscated. She even says Dr. Heineck told the family if the ball was flown, it would have to be kept in a special cage so it wouldn't interfere with the plane. Nan told me this too. And she talked about those dead trees in the area where the ball was found, saying what it was is the tops were twisted and broken, but most likely from a storm. She says people who worked at the paper mill told her family they'd never seen a ball like the Betzes. But there are also a few things she says that are different. That the ball stopped rolling around and acting weird after it came back from the UFO conference, which is before Heineck came to the house solo. But she says when he came to the house, Jerry didn't give him permission to take the ball into his room, but rather she got up and caught him with it, doing tests. This person says the outside of the ball had very specific markings and that those are still on it. So the ball may have not been switched, but maybe had been tampered with or cut open at some point. And again, she says the new x-rays didn't match. Jerry thought Heineck had something to do with all this. Although I have him on tape saying the ball was just pretty ordinary. Seems like a perfectly normal metal sphere. But this source is saying after he spent time with the ball, he told the family it was amazing and that he did think it may have been extraterrestrial. She said he took shavings from the ball and the atomic number didn't make sense. She said he had his sights set on the ball. I ran this by Clark, the UFO expert who knew Heineck, and he says Heineck just wasn't that strategic. And then Heineck's son, Paul. Your dad never publicly said it was extraterrestrial. However, the family who found the ball said to them, you know, in private, he very much did believe it was something more than that. Do you know if, does that sound like him? Is that possible? It's certainly possible. I, I think what I heard my father say was always, you know, it's hard for someone to speak in definite terms. This is extraterrestrial, for example. Um, I think he'd be more inclined to say, this is quite mysterious, or I have, I've had a metallurgical analysis done of this, and we can't place its origin, things like that. Um, so I, I don't know what he said, but I can imagine that he would be a little bit looser in his verbiage with the, the people that reported it than in public, sure. 
This anonymous family member says her family knew scientists Heineck and Harder very well. She says maybe the ball was something dangerous from the military that was deactivated. But the family just wanted to know what it was and still does. Did you try to get your hands on the sphere? And did you find it weird that if you did that you weren't able to or that they don't really want to tell anyone where it is? I mean, that would kind of solve it, right? If we could get it and then have someone examine it today. I don't know that it would solve any mysteries because and and I don't think they necessarily are either at this point because it could have been swapped in New Orleans. It could have even been swapped in the initial after the initial x-ray when it went to the Navy, although the family members were relatively convinced that if it was, it was nearly identical. It had all the same abrasions. The source said things just got really crazy with people showing up and wanting to buy the ball. Nan had told me people were camping on the Betts' property. This source said Jerry found out her phones had been tapped. The Astonishing Legends hosts both said they don't know what the ball is, although they have theories. Like, maybe it was in development for some sort of military use and the project was never fully realized. Maybe it had a purpose when attached to other machinery. Like, why would its only function be rolling around weirdly? You just can't say for sure because we don't have enough information about what's inside the ball. But they don't believe it was from the paper mill. I don't know if I can accept that theory either. It's still so weird to me that the ball was never, or at least not publicly, side-by-side compared to a ball from the paper mill or with the sculptor's metal balls. So I can't jump to those conclusions. And as a reporter, I don't want to just speculate. So what do I do with this? Everybody wants to be able to wrap up in a package this assessment of the players and the what they're saying and how it relates to the story. And you just don't always get to do that because it's it's sometimes it's just so complicated and so gray and there's so many overlapping gray areas that all you can do is just look at all the information and then as Forrest likes to say sometimes live with the question They brought something up that I think is really key in all this. Do you believe the ball acted as the family says it does? Having some sort of self-awareness, knowing where the edge of the table was. Because if you do, how could it be a ball from the paper mill? Forrest and Scott really believe the family. I think it's sort of like when someone says they've seen a ghost. If it's a person on TV, it's easy to say, yeah, sure you did. But when it's your dad or your best friend confiding in you, why would they make that up? That's the vibe I get from those who know Jerry. Yeah, the story is weird, but it happened because Jerry said it did, and she's not a liar. Throughout this whole process, I've reached out to Jerry and a few other family members multiple times, and I've been mostly met with silence, and I've lost a lot of sleep. But while I'm at work one day, I realize I have a missed call and voicemail. Hello, Lindsay. This is Jerry Dess Jackson. I got your letter, and I'm calling you back. I'm in the middle of a very... uh, She tells me she's dealing with something really important, but I'm not going to give away anything personal. But sometime when I get a chance, it might be next year, I'll get back with you. Thank you for thinking about me. God bless you. Bye-bye. I played it for my editor, Jessica. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's... So that's good and bad. 
I mean, I'm happy to hear from her and that she doesn't seem mad at me. No, she sounded very lovely. But I'm disappointed, obviously, because this is launching before next year. (laughs) Right. Um, But yeah, uh, so Hmm. I called her back and then she just said, call me next year Hmm. and we'll talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that makes you just want to say we'll have a special episode coming next year, right? Hopefully, yeah. I mean, you know, she's so sweet that I don't know if she just won't just say no and she's not going to do it. You know, that's my gut. You don't know for sure. Yeah. So this is the end of Oddball for now. When Jerry feels ready to talk, you can be sure a new episode will show up in your feed. So for now, I'm living with the question. This is Oddball, a production made possible by supporters of WJCT Public Media, with additional support from Bold Bean Coffee Roasters. If you think projects like this one are worth doing, send a message to my bosses by making a small donation at oddballpodcast.com. That's also where you can order your own bag of Oddball coffee from Bold Bean, or maybe a mug or tote bag. And stay subscribed because when Jerry wants to talk, we'll upload a new episode. Oddball was produced by me, Lindsay Kilbride, with editing by Jessica Palumbo. The music is by Matthew Wardell and by the show's intern, Al Pete. 